Uh, the fascinating thing about chaos theory is that I was one of the pioneers without even knowing it. Back in 1957, uh, two friends of mine named Malaclips the Younger and Ho Chi Zen were in a bowling alley in Yorba Linda, uh, the birthplace of Richard Nixon, and they uh, were arguing about why there's so much chaos in the world. And according to Ho Chi Zen, a chimpanzee walked in and said, Read Bullfinch. All this chaos is due to Eris, and then disappeared in a puff of green smoke. According to Malaclips, they figured it out themselves, and Ho Chi Zen just invented the miraculous talking chimpanzee to make this religion more attractive to the gullible. So they each excommunicated each other. Malaclips became the head of the Discordian Orthodoxy, and Omar uh, Ho Chi Zen became the head of the Lunatic Fringe. And as soon as I learned about this religion, I excommunicated both of them, and we were all popes of three different... Uh, factions of the Discordian society, which is uh, true to the spirit of Malaclips's original revelation, we Discordians must stick apart. Hello, and welcome to the Hilaritas Podcast, brought to you by Hilaritas Press. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join us as we explore the world of iconic writer Robert Anton Wilson and the people and ideas who influenced him. On our last episode, John Higgs took the time to chat with us about Dr. Timothy Leary. And today, we talk to Adam Gorightly about Carrie Thornley, co-founder of Discordianism. Visit us at hilaritaspress.com backslash podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. And while you're out and about on the internet, please help us find the others by hitting the thumbs up, subscribing, rating, reviewing, and or sharing the Hilaritas podcast. It helps more than you might think. As we continue to follow Bob's journey through Cosmic Trigger, we find that in 1966, New Libertarian Magazine began publishing some of Bob the Writer's work. Bob began corresponding with the new libertarian editor, Carrie Thornley, who turned Bob the prankster onto Discordianism, and Bob soon expanded on the Discordianism Law of Fives with his own Law of Twenty-Three. Soon thereafter, Thornley entangled himself in Jim Garrison's investigation of the JFK assassinations, and things did not go well between Garrison and Thornley. Bob found himself drawn into the controversy. As he writes in Cosmic Trigger 1, that's when I really began to understand how arbitrary are the reality constructs of the average human nervous system. The establishment underground press was 100% anti-Garrison and denied all of his charges. The underground press was 100% pro-Garrison and supported all of his charges. My God, the libertarian said to himself one day in early 1968, when all this had become clear, the left wing is as robotic as the right wing. At that point, Bob and the Discordians, through what they called Operation Mindfuck, began fanning the flames of conspiracy by spreading their own alternative conspiracies through the underground press. What started out as innocent fun at the expense of the hardcore paranoid would later turn back on itself and lead Carrie over the edge of sanity and threaten to take Bob the Shaman with him. And now, with all that said, I am super excited to introduce our guest for this episode, 
author and historian Adam Go Rightly. All right. I am here today with Adam Go Rightly, and we are here to talk about Cary Thornley and his influence on Robert Anton Wilson. So, Adam, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me on. Ah, it's a pleasure. And where where are we finding you in this in your locations in time and space today? You can find me in Central California, where I live near uh, Yosemite National Park, just uh, a little bit south of Yosemite. Mm, that sounds lovely. Beautiful uh, Central Valley woodlands. Back at the uh, Maybe Logic days with Robert Anton Wilson, we did an online chat at the end of every Maybe Logic Academy course. And, uh, you know, this is the early days of the internet, like 03, 04, with the online chatting. And Wilson, I was always tickled to hear where everybody was tuning in from. Yeah, I actually joined one of those Maybe Logic Academies back then. I think the one on quantum uh, psychology. Oh, nice. I, would, I think I was in that course. I can't remember. So do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, Adam? You've got a few books under your belt. When I look at your book catalog, it kind of reminds me of the old Lumpanics catalog. <laughs> Very pleasant way. A good memory there. Yeah, I got nine books, I think is the number now. Really got into writing back in the old zine days of... Uh, mm writing about, uh, you know, conspiratorial topics, uh, paranormal consciousness. And that was kind of where a lot of the cool stuff was getting, you know, published in that period of the late 80s, uh, early 90s. And so kind of cut my teeth doing that. Then in the late 90s, I uh, was interested in uh, a lot of these uh, conspiracies, uh, that had been associated with the Manson family. So I started down that rabbit hole and ultimately gathered so much material. I, that led to the first book, my first book, The Shadow Over Santa Susana, Black Magic, Mind Control, and the Manson Family Mythos. So yeah, continued on that path of writing about various topics. I mentioned paranormal conspiracies, consciousness, and uh, along the way, got interested in Carrie Thornley, who's the uh, subject of today's show. Found him a uh, to really be a fascinating character. First heard about him in a book by Jonathan Vankin called Conspiracies, Cover-Ups, and Crimes, which was published in the uh, early 90s or so. And I just found there was one chapter on Carrie Thornley, who I found to be a really fascinating character, how he had known Oswald prior to the uh, Kennedy assassination, was writing a book kind of based upon Oswald three years before the Kennedy assassination and became a target of the uh, garrison investigation and ultimately kind of went off the uh, deep end over time, began to believe, you know, at first he denied any uh, connection to the assassination. But over time, you began to believe some of the theories that Garrison was promoting and that he had uh, he wasn't a witting participant, but he began to believe he'd been unwittingly uh, got brought into the Kennedy uh, assassination. And as these theories kind of evolved or spiraled out of control, he believed he 
had been a mind con- a subject of mind control conspiracy and that he and Oswald were some type of hybrid Nazi test tube creations and really just kind of a wild uh, scenario. But I found it all pretty fascinating. And so uh, Vankin in that book said that he was uh, considering writing a uh, biography in uh, Thorne. I thought, oh, that'll be great. And he never got around to doing that. And I was gathering material. So eventually uh, wrote the book, The Prankster and the Conspiracy. I was around 2003. And that kind of got me into uh, more into Discordianism and uh, Robert Anton Wilson. So, nice. yeah, that's that's kind of my background as far as the interest in uh, Thornley and Wilson and Discordianism kind of started that way. At, uh, initially, it was just the, all the conspiratorial stuff about Thornley that had interested me. Right. I, I um, have been a Wilson fan for a long time and thought I'd gone a pretty deep dive with Bob. But, you know, certain things just don't always resonate with everybody. And the Discordian thing, I... I feel like I get it on the surface, but there's like layers of the joke that I don't feel like I'm getting or I'll, I feel like I get it a little deeper, but there's another level to go. Well, join the club. <laughs> Is that okay? I'm not alone. That's good. That's good. And then I, I never quite got Thornley or he just didn't hit my radar too heavily besides, you know, he created Discordianism. And I, I read your book in preparation for this interview and I was like, oh man, he was, uh, he was balls deep in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm excited to to unpack this a little further. I guess if we were to start out with Thornley, what could you tell us about his uh, his start in life? Well, he was born. Let's when was thirty nine? Thirty nine. Okay. So, so yeah, grew up during the kind of uh, conformist Eisenhower uh, period, but he was always like a free thinker, crazy kid growing up. Had an appetite for knowledge and exploring uh, kind of arcane paths sometimes different just uh, opening himself up to different ideas and philosophies and ideologies just to explore them so and he loved debating different uh, topics and you know was also into uh, kind of off the wall pursuits at least for a teenager in the 1950s he and his buddy Greg Hill had a uh, interest in flying saucers you know so they went mm. to uh, flying saucer meetings and eventually became as the uh, counterculture of the 60s got going they got Thornley got pretty heavily immersed in that he and Greg knew each other real early on if i'm hearing yeah. right yep in uh, high school and so uh, that's kind of how Discordianism started, was in a, a bowling alley where they would meet. And I learned years later that there was actually three main participants in those early days. Uh, Greg Hill, Carrie Thornley, and a guy named Robert Newport. The reason they'd meet in bowling alleys and uh, shoot the breeze, basically, because it was a place where teenagers could uh, get away with buying alcohol if one mm. of them look old enough so that's why they uh, hung out at bowling alleys and it was during one of their many conversations there that they came up with this idea of starting this spoof religion called uh, discordianism which is the worship of the greek goddess of chaos and discord 
I've heard the bowling alley story before, but for some reason I was flooded with images of the Big Lebowski as you were talking. And it just putting those things together makes me really happy. <laughs> <laughs> I had written a post sometimes back talking about some connections between uh, the Discordian bowling alley and the Big uh, Lebowski. Oh, that's fantastic. Maybe that's maybe I have seen that and that's what inspired my my images. That's lovely. So it was kind of a basic thing to spoof and uh, satire other major religions, you know, by uh, using a uh, matriarch as the uh, deity that uh, and a religion dedicated to basically chaos. <laughs> and uh, there was, you know, as it evolved over time, so there was really no rules. And that's probably why you're confused about Discordianism, because one of the maxims is we Discordians must stick apart. And so you can believe or disbelieve whatever you want if you're a Discordian, because everybody can, because <laughs> it means something to everybody, every, you know, every other person. Yes. Yes. And so anyway, that started, that was in the late uh, 50s. And when Thornley was in high school, he was a Marine Corps reservist. When he graduated, you know, the rumblings of the Vietnam War were kind of on the horizon. He was aware of that. He thought, well, this might be a good time to uh, enlist and get my active uh, duty out of the way, because he already had a year with the ROTC program. So that means, you know, put in two more years and that he could uh, fulfill his, uh, his active duty in the Marines. And he, he had a interest in traveling and seeing the world. So this would provide him an opportunity. But, but there was, was there a sense that uh, by enlisting right away out of high school, he was sort of averting a, a greater evil, like getting this, this uh, obligation out of the way as quick as possible? Is that what? Yeah, I believe so. I, that was one of his uh, motivations for sure. Gotcha. And this was 1959, so you know it ah, yeah. worked worked out that way. And so he uh, his basic training was at uh, El Toro Marine Base in uh, Southern California, and that's where he met Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, Oswald had just returned from being over at Natsugi, Japan, as as a radar operator, basically. But he got in trouble. They reduced his rank. And he came back under some type of cloud and shame, got in trouble with the brass for whatever reasons. But Thornley kind of gravitated to him because uh, Oswald was uh, somebody who uh, had an interest in evidently Marxism and communism and could, you know, intelligently <laughs> talk about this stuff. And Thornley as well was interested in exploring different, like I said, different political ideologies and whatnot. So he and Oswald became, uh, you know, friends, so to speak. Yeah, that's, uh, if I remember right, it wasn't like Oswald had a lot of close friends, but if you were to identify the, the person closest to him in the military, it was, at that time, it would have been Thornley, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Probably so. And uh, Thornley was there at Sugi for two months or roughly two months. And so that's the period he knew Oswald. And then he got shipped over to Atsugi, Japan. And on his way over there, he was started working on this novel called The Idle Warriors, which had to do with the kind of the malaise of serving in the armed forces during that period, you know, and 
a lot of nobody really knew what they were uh, potentially fighting for, and uh, you know, and so that was kind of the theme about the book, and it was based upon. Thornley himself, other Marines he knew during that period, including Oswald. And shortly after that is when Oswald defected to Russia. And when Thornley heard that, he went, holy crap, I'm going to make him the lead subject of the book. And so uh, the protagonist. So he was basically writing a book about Oswald three years before the Kennedy assassination, which was a curiosity for a lot of people, you know? Wow. Yeah. And so Thornley had a lot of uh, varied interests, and one of them was anarchism, libertarianism. And uh, so, yeah, after the uh, Marines, well, I'm kind of skipping the New Orleans uh, period. I don't know how chronologically deep in the weeds you want to. Uh, we'll go back to it. How about that? Yeah. So he ends up in uh, Los Angeles in late 64, 65, and starts editing what is considered probably the first libertarian newsletter mm. called, the, called The Innovator. One thing, you know, this they didn't call it libertarianism back then. <laughs> it was, uh, I'm not, they really, it was kind of, it came out of partly objectivism on right. Rand, and, uh, and he had an interest in Ayn Rand and anarchism. And so did they mostly just call themselves objectivists or I'm not I'm not sure that the what just they, anarchism yeah but anarchism hasn't really crystallized as a term yet as well right I'm right and so yeah that's how he met uh, Wilson was through the uh, innovator ah and there's a couple of versions of the story how they met and uh, Wilson now act talks about it in cosmic trigger too but I think I think it was Thornley's version where he basically said he was uh, writing into the Playboy. I always forget if it's the Playboy Forum or Playboy Advisor that Wilson edited. The Forum, I believe. Yeah, that dealt with uh, civil rights issues and stuff like that, as opposed to the Advisor, which was the sexy stuff. And uh, that's how they came in contact you know thornley probably sent uh, an issue of the innovator and they found that there are some of their ideas aligned uh, quite a bit you know it's interesting to me as we're going through this podcast I'm, I'm hearing just how much of an avid reader bob was so through these periodicals and magazines and things like that that circulated he got to meet people like carrie thornley mm -hmm. just almost like an underground internet of connections before the internet through these periodicals oh totally and it ramped up with discordianism oh right yeah wilson uh you know became a discordian he thought it was great <laughs> this uh, spoof religion a way to kind of riff on a lot of different topics by uh you know, using the, uh, the Discordian Society vehicle, so to speak. It was kind of turned into many things over the years, but it was a collaboration, kind of an art project of sorts at times, uh, kind of a uh, secret club of pranksters, you know, that would... Right. Uh, and well, I know Wilson 
Bob was a, sort of a man of letters, let's call it, and wrote a lot to people. And the impression I got in maybe the 70s and 80s is that every letter would be accompanied by a, a dozen pages of what you might call Discordian propaganda. So he just kind of proliferated this material through his letter writing. Uh, fascinating. We were talking about Thornley and, and Bob getting to know each other through Thornley's Libertarian Journal and Bob's involvement with Playboy. So Bob's a Discordian now, and there's different players that are getting involved. Greg Hill, you know, is probably the main mover of this, and Bob Newport and Shay got interested in it, you know. Let's see. So, well, a couple things were going on. So Thornley became the target of the uh, Garrison investigation. And Garrison had all kinds of pretty wild claims that uh, Thornley was either one of the Oswald doubles pretending to be Oswald and that he had written uh, the book, The Idol Warriors, and another quickie he put out right out of, after the assassination called Oswald. Garrison claimed that those were like propagandas to paint Oswald as a uh, lone nut, you know, trigger happy communist, and that Thornley was part of this conspiracy based out of New Orleans, et cetera. And Bob Wilson became one of the few defenders of Thornley during that uh, period. And I kind of mentioned it in my uh, book that uh, Wilson was confused. He started, you know, sending out some letters mm. and stuff defending. Thornley to kind of left-leaning underground uh, counterculture publications, but most of those were uh, basically pro-Garrison, <laughs> and mm. so it ended up, as he said, sending it to the wrong place. He should have been sending to more right-wing uh, periodicals or whatever, but so as this Garrison investigation was happening, Garrison had all these, you know, he had his paid staff there in New Orleans, but he also had all these independent investigators showing up with their own theories. I mean, from Mort Saul to, uh, he was one of the uh, key guys, to a whole list, Mark Lane, you know, uh, if you're familiar with some of these names, he's a lawyer that wrote uh, one of the first conspiratorial-minded books, Russian judgment. So anyway, they called them the Daily Plaza Regulars, a whole host of different independent investigators there yeah. feeding Garrison some information, some of it pretty wild, and uh, Thornley yeah. caught wind of some of this. And one of, one of these investigators was named Alan Chapman, who was associated with the uh, John Birch Society. He was claiming that the Illuminati was behind the Kennedy assassination which uh, both Thornley and Wilson thought was pretty hysterical. And they figured they'd prank with Garrison, some of those investigators, oh. by creating these Illum fake Illuminati identities and sending them prank letters and whatnot. And that kind of launched what became known as Operation Mindfuck, which included the uh, letter that was planted in the Playboy advisor by Wilson with Thornley's help uh, talking about the Illuminati. So, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm just coming to grips with the fact that Operation Mindfuck sprang out of the Garrison investigation. Mm -hmm. and, and after reading your book, I got the impression that Garrison was, I don't know if Chapel Perilous is too strong a word, but he just seemed really caught up in his own web 
within this investigation. And, and so the prone to follow some of these rabbit holes pretty willingly. And so the fact that, that the, the bobs were messing with him, uh, <laughs> there's, there's some real, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I, you know, prior to me learning kind of this backstory, I, I was aware of Garrison. I, you know, like I said, I was writing about the different conspiracy theories and I was interested in different uh, conspiracy theorists like Mae Russell, if you're familiar with her. Yes. And I used to listen to her show quite a bit and, uh, you know, back in the back in the day. But yeah, back in the 80s or so. And so she'd bring up Garrison, you know, and how he was the New Orleans district attorney and bring up his theories. And it like sounded pretty legit. Here's the, you know, district attorney of New Orleans. And uh, so I put a lot of credence into that, you know, and so did other folks like Oliver Stone. You know, his movie, uh, what was his movie called on the... Uh, uh, was it just JFK? Yeah. And so Garrison was like one of the... Uh, that was uh, Kevin Costner, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, played by Kevin Costner. So that was a heavy influence on uh, that, that Oliver Stone movie. And as I you know, got deep into a lot of this in later years with uh, Thornley, I saw that Garrison, yeah, he just latched on to... A, a lot of uh, really wild theories for one reason or another. Almost like so desperate to pin it on something that he yeah, just, just whatever he could grasp a hold of was was uh, subject to that at the moment. Yeah, and it kept evolving different <laughs> over right, time. Right. I imagine getting crazier and crazier, but oof. so you know that was going on, and this is around the time that. Uh, they Wilson and Shea started working on a, the Illuminatus trilogy, and it was partly due, or maybe largely due, to the this Operation Mindfuck. And uh, Wilson, after uh, he started publishing this uh, Illuminati letter, he started receiving even more correspondence from different conspiracy theorists or wackos. <laughs> so to speak, extremists, conspiratorial thought and whatnot, and uh, started saving all this material. And uh, eventually that provided uh, a lot of ideas for the Illuminatus trilogy. And, and thus, yeah, the epic was born. And now as that was going on, you know, you had besides Operation Mindfuck, uh, <laughs> there was a lot going on with Discordians. And one of them was what they called was groovy kits they'd send around where somebody would initiate it, a manila envelope packed with, you know, whatever, funny jokes or maybe a marijuana roach or, you know, whatever material was going on during those days, counterculture propaganda or whatnot hippie artwork, and then you send it off to the next person on the list, and they take something out or add something, mm. and sharing ideas this way. Once again, early kind of internet, before the internet, these yes. networks that were going on, and a lot of that that collaboration ended up in what became known as the Principia Discordia, which is kind of the Bible of Discordianism. Right. And so that influenced Illuminatus too. And of course, Illuminatus was dedicated, at least one of the books was dedicated to Thornley and Craig Hill. They had a huge, pretty big influence 
on that. And in the Illuminatus, it mentions nobody knew, you know, except this the handful of the handful of guys, Wilson Shea, Thornley Hill, and a few others, uh, what the Principia Discordia was, because it was just circulated to a few people. But they, it's written about in the Illuminatus as a thing, you know, and so are uh, some of their ah. alternate Discordian personalities. You know, they all adopted these names. Bob was Mordecai the Fowl. Right. Thornley was Omar Khayyam Ravenhurst. And so they all had these uh, Discordian names and characters they created. And some of those characters <laughs> ended up in a, the Illuminatus. And they're, you know, the sage old battle between Discordians and the Illuminati. And uh, like I said, it mentions the Principi Discordia. But anybody reading that would have no clue that there was actually, you know, there was a, because, you know, the Illuminatus was partly (laughs) based on little kernels of factual information mixed in with embellishments on different conspiracy theories. So if I'm hearing you right, though, the Illuminatus came out with lots of references to the Principia Discordiatism, but this is really before the Principia has been widely disseminated. And if I also caught you right, the Principia was kind of born out of these groovy kits. Or yeah, that- exactly. Exactly. Oh, I didn't. Wow. And if you look at the uh, Principia Discordia, the fifth edition is the most famous one. You'll see, yeah, all the, just these in jokes and philosophical ideas and play on words and you know stuff about number 23 and different collages and stuff that was all the stuff they were circulating and greg hill pulled it over pulled it together over time and so somebody figured out that the principia discordia was a real book eventually and it was published <laughs> published a couple of years after illuminatus by Lumpanics, uh-huh. who you mentioned before. Yeah. I mean, they they had self-published uh, Principia before that, but Lumpanics was really the addition that got it out there. In the, uh... Gotcha. What just hit me as we were talking, too, is how meme-worthy this all is. I don't know how to say it, but the Principia was just kind of based maybe on these memes, and the, the memes were spread through Illuminatus, and it kind of generated through this groovy kit. And, <laughs> and you could, I mean, boy, if that, if that happened today, the memes that would have been generated out of all this would have been off the charts. Oh, yeah, it's wild. And they were, they were you know, uh, they were sending stuff to different counterculture publications as part of Operation Mindfuck or whatever you want to call right. it, to rewrite the narrative of what the Illuminati was or to satirize the Illuminati. Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff, the theories that John Birch Society were was... Uh, publishing and promoting back in you know during that period and so for instance like uh, they sent some material to the village voice kind of anonymous anonymously or they had some connection there but and so the village voice prints a couple things one of them is this chart of the illuminati without any uh context mm. to go with it you know and it's this chart that probably greg hill put together and it shows the structure of the illuminati and it, it was based on earlier charts i've seen that you know uh, different 
like John Birch Society put together, you know, linking whatever major corporations and the Bilderberg Society and the Trilateral Commission and Nelson Rockefeller, you know, one of those type maps. But Greg Hill or the rest of the bunch constructed this uh, map of the Illuminati that they sent to the Village Voice that had Mordecai Fowl as one of the prime Illuminatus and Omar Kayam Ravenhurst and uh, these different Discordian collaborators. So they, they were planting these seeds, you know. Right. It, it makes me wonder how much fuel they poured on the right-wing conspiracy fire and in turn, just kind of extrapolating ahead how much influence they've had on what's now the modern QAnon thing. Well, they, they have, unfortunately. It wasn't intended that way. Right, right. But here we are. Yeah. It's like, remember the whole Peppy the Frog thing? Yeah. It's kind of meme magic using the, the sigil of Peppy the Frog, basically, to... Uh, do a kind of the magical working. And in the eyes of, you know, that's where the term alt-right came. Uh, they basically put, you know, Donald Trump in office, partly through this magical operation. And when, mm. the, when that stuff was going on, I guess, even before the election, I started seeing these videos put out by these kind of alt-right uh, characters, and they were basically using the term Operation Mindfuck and Discordians as being uh, part of this or an influence on this whole Peppy the Frog thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> and there was some kind of pedophile connection with Pepe the Frog. I didn't quite get the whole Pepe the Frog, but I remember it being around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't think Wilson or <laughs> Hill would be really thrilled with, uh, you know, how these terms have been co-opted, but uh, there it is. Well, it's it seems like maybe a story of strange loops. Mm -hmm. And and what, what I mean by that is one of the things when I read about Thornley is there was all this wild stuff going on. You had Discordianism and Operation Mindfuck and his relationship with Oswald and the book he was writing. And then you start to wonder about how much influence the CIA may have truly genuinely had. But there's also this idea that he kind of became his own self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, that he got caught up in his own strange loops, maybe. Yeah. Um, maybe you can explain that better than I can, but I just have that sense of how he kind of created his own prison in a way. Wilson talks about that in uh, Cosmic Trigger, how, you know, mm. Operation Mindfuck was a whole lot of fun until it wasn't until it came back and bit them on the butt and particularly Thornley who had satirized you know all these different Illuminati conspiracy theories and uh, different stuff like that and ultimately ended up believing even wilder uh, theories as his paranoia grew over time and it was uh, probably a number of things that attributed to that I think the paranoid schizophrenia which he developed on and off it seems over the years uh, he, eventually he uh, was diagnosed and medicated and that kind of helped him through his later years but you know there was that kind of ran through the family is my understanding he mm. also experimenting with psychedelics lsd i think uh 
contributed to his eventual paranoid delusions and the garrison investigation, which kind of pushed that over the edge because, you know, he was this target for about two years as being, you know, according to Garrison, involved on some level or another with the Kennedy assassination. That was based, uh, if we go back in time a little bit now, to after Thornley got out of the uh, Marines, he landed back in Southern California. And the story goes that he and Greg Hill were out late one night. They lived in Whittier, California, and they were just walking along the streets, making noise, laughing or whatever. And a cop came up to him and said, uh, you guys need to tone it down. You're disturbing the peace, you know. We're going to arrest you for vagrancy or something. If you don't, you know, it's need to pipe down, go home. So they went home, according to Thornley and Hill. And uh, once again, uh, one of their parents told them, you know, they're making too much noise. You know, you guys need this. So they went over to Greg Hill's house and they <laughs> got the same thing from his parents. And they say, well, let's move someplace where we can stay up all night and laugh and whatever. And they decided New Orleans was the place to be. So they both, Hill and Thornley, went to New Orleans. This was 61. And it was there that Thornley met some people that he later suspected had maybe been involved in the uh, Kennedy assassination and that they had unwittingly basically manipulated or messed with his mind and we're going to use him as an alternative patsy in the Kennedy assassinations, you know, and Garrison was looking at some of these threads too. Initially, Thornley thought he was out of his mind, but, you know, post the Garrison investigation, Thornley started looking more and more into a lot of these angles, and it became convinced that this guy named Gary Kirsten, a.k.a. brother-in-law, was perhaps E. Howard Hunt of Watergate fame, and that a lot of people, you know, started connecting Hunt to the uh, Kennedy assassination. It's kind of a weird thing, too. I mean, there's a whole rogue gallery cast of characters that have been implicated in the Kennedy assassination, one of whom was Hunt. And Hunt actually did a, uh, before he died a few years back, did some type of deathbed confession claiming that he was involved in the assassination at one level or another. So a lot of these areas that Thornley was looking into in these connections, you know, they were disturbing. And, you know, he started seeing these patterns connecting the dots, they uh, call it. And uh, this really began to warp his head over uh, time and, you know, took him in that journey through uh, Chapel Perilous. Right. The weird thing is he suspected that uh, Wilson became part of uh ryan his handler cia CIA handler of all things yeah claimed that wilson came to uh oh in the mid-70s visited him in atlanta and slipped him some acid to deprogram him or something like that and uh, Mm. of course wilson claimed that never (laughs) happened but uh, you know so thornley began to suspect him of being part of this conspiracy that was uh, whatever trying to cover up the garrison investigation and or yeah uh, cover up the Kennedy assassination. 
Right. And thus so much of his pranking earlier on kind of became that strange loop of self-fulfilling prophecy in a way as he looked back at this in a paranoid state, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was there was something about New Orleans. I remember brother-in-law and the Howard Hunt possibilities. But there was also a particular location in northern New Orleans that had like a storefront maybe and a, some, a business is run out of the back and businesses. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. It was tied in with brother-in-law, I want to say. And I never I didn't when I read your book, I don't think I quite got the the magnitude of that. But there was a lot going on out of that location. Well, maybe or maybe not. You know, <laughs> they're talking about the building that Guy Bannister had a detective agency out of. Right. That sounds... Yeah. And there was multiple entrances uh, to it, supposedly. I mean, and the other entrance was uh, what Oswald used on his Fair Play for Cuba leaflets. Right. And so the connection was made there that that was part of an operation, uh, intelligence operation of some sort or part of somehow connected to the Kennedy assassination to paint this portrait that Oswald was a uh, communist when really he was just trying to infiltrate maybe the, uh, you know, the pro-Castro movement. And so it's been alleged that Oswald worked for Guy Bannister, you know, that was all part of the garrison theory and that, uh, you know, characters like David Ferry worked for Guy Bannister, as did Slim Brooks. Supposedly, once again, I'm not uh, sure this has ever been conclusively proven, but people have alleged this. And Slim Brooks was the first dude that Thornley met when he was in New Orleans. And Thornley later suspected that Slim was a, a handler. Slim was one of the early members of the uh, Discordian Society, of all things. And if you go to my uh, website, discordia.com, I just posted uh, something on uh, Slim Brooks. And so um, other people have identified Slim Brooks as Jerry Milton Brooks, who was a part of the Minuteman movement, but also uh, was turned into an FBI informant, you know. Brooks was connected with this Kirsten guy, brother-in-law. So mm. those are some of the weird connections. And Thornley got on this line of reasoning, partly due to when he was in New York and like 74, Greg Hill had moved there for a while. And they're on the street one day and they saw a copy of the Yipster Times that Alan Weberman, if you're familiar with him, published. He, he was part of the uh, Yippie movement back then. And mm. uh, he's the famous, he uh, calls himself Garbologist, <laughs> dumpster diver. And, and he was an investigator of sorts, you know, pretty interesting dude. And he got on this line of reasoning where he believed that E. Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis, who were involved in the Watergate break-in, were two of the three mystery tramps that were picked up in Daly right. Plaza after the assassination. And so that copy of Yipster Times had a, a photo comparing like the guy who's known as the old man tramp with E. Howard Hunt. And uh, when Thornley saw this, he immediately recognized Hunt, or at least he... Brother-in-law? As brother-in-law, you know? <laughs> it's, uh, I appreciate your approach to all this material because I'm sitting here 
desperately trying not to jump to conclusions that seem so easy to jump to. Uh, yeah, part part of the thing I came across, uh, I don't know if I'll publish this or not, because it's kind of a long and rambling recorded conversation, and it was Greg Hill's memorial. Hmm. It was basically some of his friends, just a half dozen or so, who were discordians as well. Louise Lacey was one of them. I think she recorded this conversation. And Robert Newport was there, and they were discussing some of this stuff about the uh, Kennedy assassination. And one of the things was, uh, you know, they were talking about somebody brought up the whole brother-in-law thing, and uh, one of the people on the tape said, you know, I talked to Greg about that and he was there in New Orleans and he had met the uh, brother-in-law and he thought he didn't uh, <laughs> look like he Howard Hunt. He does, you know, mm. so this is, you know, uh, I think uh, some, some of these, you know, it was diluted thinking on the part of uh, Thornley, but Hill had a uh, really a, uh, Deep interest in the uh, Kennedy assassination helped Thornley pull a lot of his different writings about the Kennedy assassination, which later led to like kind of unpublished thing called Oswald Thornley, which I recently posted at storyadiscordia.com. And that evolved over time to another thing Thornley wrote called Dreadlock Recollections that that was that he self-published uh, back in the day. And actually, Illuminate Press was looking at publishing it in the early 90s. But uh, the uh, publisher there, Ron Bonds, had a concern about this allegation about E. Howard Hunt. He was nervous about that. So ultimately, you know, it was uh, never published. But so Greg Hill was uh, kind of a... Uh, he was always there as kind of a brother, friend for uh, Thornley, and uh, very supportive during. Yeah, that. but but also was yeah had this deep interest. I found out in the Kennedy assassination, and back in the seventies, uh, just amassed this huge video library of any thing mm. related to the uh, Kennedy assassination on uh, video cassette tapes, and I later. Uh, the, Discordian archives were passed on to me, which were Greg's archives. He saved everything, letters and all the you know different Discordian materials over the years. But I'm not sure what became of that uh, video library put together. Wow, that's it, it. It's amazing to me how deep you can go with these guys. It's like bottomless in a way. Something about well, let's talk about the archives a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, let's. So when I was writing the uh, prankster and the conspiracy, I uh, found out about Bob Newport. He found out about me. I'm not sure. I'm still puzzled about how we connected because I got an email in 2000 alerting me that uh, Greg Hill had died. So yeah, that was prior to the prankster and the conspiracy. I guess I had the only thing I can think of, I had posted an interview with Thornley uh, back in the late 90s. So maybe he got my name from there. He, would, he really wasn't sure later when I asked him, how'd you know to uh, contact me? But uh, anyway, I was working on this Thornley book. I emailed him back and asked 
Tim, uh, well, you knew Greg Hill. Did you knew Terry Thornley too? And he said, yeah, uh, knew them in high school. I'm one of the three founding members of the Discordian Society. I go, okay, oh, wow. well, this guy's be a good source. And uh, I contact him. He's become a good friend over the years too. Knew Wilson pretty well. So when I interviewed Wilson for the Prankster and the Conspiracy in 2000, I think, I also interviewed Robert Newport. We kind of all connected at uh, Wilson's house. And Newport brought together an armload of material. He was calling the Discordian Archives and some pretty cool stuff, you know. And he let me borrow it, scan it, some of it that ended up in the uh, prankster and the conspiracy. And so I asked him at that uh, time, hey, do you mind if there might be enough uh, material here to publish another book, you know, just about the Discordian Society said, yeah, I'd be fine with that. And so anyway, I returned these materials to him. That was uh, early uh, 2000s and stayed in contact. And in 2009, I was going down to LA for uh, something and I uh, contacted Bob Newport at that time, said, hey, I'm done getting more serious about this book, which later became a story of Discordia. Can I still use those materials? And he said, yeah, it's totally, totally down with it. And he said, next time you're in L.A., uh, stop by. I'll give you everything. Wow. And so uh, met with him and everything turned out to be multiple boxes, you know, it was like like 13 wow. boxes oh, of wow. material. And you can see it if you go to Historia Discordia, and there's a post called the Discordian Archives explained how all this came together. And so a lot of that material led to other books. Uh, among them, you know, the recent uh, Starseed Signals was in the uh, Discordian Archives. And I didn't really, I mean, there was a lot there. So it took me time to go through the, the stuff, you know. And uh, at some point, I came across that Starseed Signals manuscript. And I was like, what the hell is this? And oh. it, it turned out to be <laughs> what it was. This book Bob was working on is kind of the proto of uh, Cosmic Trigger, and some of the uh, material in Starseed Signals ended up in Cosmic Trigger, as you're probably mm -hmm. aware of. He was writing it basically during the period that Leary was locked up, and part of his motivation was to get Leary released, so it was kind of a pro-Leary book to push that cause, and during the course of writing it, Leary ended up getting a pardon and released from prison by Jerry Brown, who was governor at that time. And so I think the book fell by the wayside, but how it ended up in the archives, the Scordian archives, was uh, Greg Hill always had access to a lot of Xerox printing machines and stuff. They really weren't widely available during that time. So he was always a big help in that respect, because I think he worked at different places. I think during the period of the Starseed Signals, he was working like for a law firm. And he worked in the evening, he managed a small team that basically prepared crap, you know, for the lawyers. And it was a printing and a lot of stuff. And so he could, on the sly, printed up like a dozen of these manuscripts for Wilson. Of course, kept one for himself for the archives because he said oh, right. every, everything. And then uh, Hill was able it. to ship it off to uh, the guy who was working as uh, Wilson's agent at that 
time. So that's, you know, that's kind of the backstory behind uh, that. I got you. Thank you for that. That's great. Starseed signals, if I were to put it myself in a few words, it's like Wilson's love song, Deliri. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, or a friend of mine said it was just good to read Young Bob again. Yeah, quite a revelation finding that. There's some other you know, mind-blowing stuff in these archives that it took me a while to figure out what the heck I was uh, looking at. One was different versions of the uh, Principia Discordia. Oh, wow. And so as legend had it, there was one, uh, the first edition of the Principia Discordia, which is a, a completely different than what it, it evolved into. But that uh, first edition was supposedly lost. Nobody really had any copies, you know. There was, uh, Hill remembered there was five copies made and it was oddly enough reproduced according to one story on jim garrison's mimeograph machine because they were in new orleans at this right (laughs) and a friend of theirs lane kaplinger was a um, typist for garrison and she did stuff after hours i contacted lane in later years and she didn't remember it quite that (laughs) way you know but uh so Mm. I think she might have typed up different, a few different things that ended up in the first edition of the Principia Discordia. And uh, interestingly enough, Lane Kaplinger is the sister of Grace Kaplinger, who was friends with Thornley and Greg Hill. And Grace Kaplinger later uh, is more widely known as Grace Zabrinsky, the actress who appeared in... Uh, Like, for instance, Twin Peaks. She played the role of Laura Palmer's mother, and and she was a source for the prankster and the conspiracy. So, uh, oh, so anyway, where I was going with this, as I was going through it, I discovered what turned out to be the first edition of the Principia Discordia. Wow, what a goldmine. Yeah. And so it's probably the only existing copy of that first edition. And that I could see how it evolved, too, because by the time they got around to the second edition, it was totally different. It was, uh, you know, a lot of this groovy kit collaboration with all these different players. And there, then there was a third edition. It became more polished. And so I, I found all the different iterations of the uh, Principia Discordia. And ultimately, it became, you know, what was the best known version was what was published by Bloom Panics in uh, 77. Pretty widely available on the internet now, I think, that fifth edition, right? Yeah, but you're never quite sure what, what you're getting. Well, yeah, because there's like, uh, <laughs> it's Discordianism, so people have done alternate versions where they'll add artwork or this or that. And then there's some like super lame editions of the Principia Discordia, because there's no copyright on it, which mm-hmm. is an interesting thing when... Uh, and this is uh, like fodder for future project of some sort or another, but I have all the original contracts for the Olympanics edition right. of Principia Discordia. Like I said, Greg Hill saved everything in that uh, contract. Basically, it looks like it's one of the very early, could be the first example of Greg Hill saying, basically presenting the uh, concept of creative commons 
Because uh-huh. what he was saying after it was published, he, anybody could publish it. All rights reversed, as he called it, or copy left. And so that's opened up to whoever wants to republish it, republish it. And there's some like really crap versions where there's, it's like, for instance, it's just the text. There's none of the artwork, you know, so. Well, now it's quite a document. I mean, you think about it, it's like open source development, like open source code and just the fluidity of it and and how it grew and morphed and was collaborative and open source. And uh, I have to ask, what was it like for you when you realized you had a copy of the first edition in your hands? Oh, man, it was kind of scary. (laughs) Don't spill your coffee. (laughs) Uh, yeah, just kind of hard to believe. Wow, how'd all this fall into my lap, you know? But you make those, uh, you know, I made that connection with Newport, which was serendipitous or kind of unexplainable, you know, because we couldn't remember exactly how he came to email me. But anyway, all that led over time to a friendship and getting these materials because he had them for a number of years and he was considering doing a website, but he got. You know, became interested in other things like landscape paintings, very good landscape painters. So, yeah. And as as he told the story, the archives would have ended up in a a dumpster had, you know, he'd not shown up, you know, Mm. when after Greg Hill died and uh, saved the materials, they most likely would have been uh, gone. And so, interestingly enough, too, I just, uh, kind of became aware of this over the last couple of years, going through a lot of the correspondence between Hill and uh, Wilson. Uh, at one point, uh, we we're talking about Greg Hill went to New York. That's where he and Thornley saw that copy of the Ipster Times. And so when he went to New York, he left the archives in Bob Wilson's uh, possession. So Wilson had these Discordian archives for a year and a half or two years. And I think it was during the period where he was finishing up the uh, Illuminatus. So that was like a resource for him. And so that's why you see some of the material that ended up in uh, Illuminatus. He uh, basically was using the uh, stuff he had found in the Discordian archives as a source. Perfect. That's lovely how it just ends up in your lap as it needs to be and ends up in his lap, Wilson's lap as it needs to be. And and that's, I think Wilson was really the driver initially of Bloom Panic's publishing uh, the Principia Discordia because uh, Bloom Panic's did a couple versions and I have, and one has a white cover and it has mm. um, an introduction by Michael Hoy who is the publisher there of uh, Panics? And I think Wilson provided that uh, to him as far as I could tell, because he was trying, Wilson, some of the correspondence was trying to get it published. And so, but then there was a second edition where um, Michael Hoy reached out to Greg Hill and uh, Greg Hill gave him the original paste-ups. Greg Hill was very accomplished at that and so they used that for the, like that follow-up edition they did of the Principia Discordia. Though, and in that second one, they have an introduction by Robert Anton Wilson. Right, right. Wilson was pretty uh, kind of a uh, 
key driver in getting that published because Greg Hill was kind of in those later years was kind of off and on, you know, the heyday of his involvement was like leading up to, you know, the late sixties into the early seventies leading up to the uh, publication of Illuminatus. And Wilson was kind of carrying the torch to get that published. And there's some oddball editions. There's another hard copy edition of Principia Discordia, which I have. And it's very rare that was published in New York. And I don't know all the details, but it seems like first I was thinking since Greg Hill was out there that he was he did that. But now I seem I think Wilson uh, Wilson initiated that and was published by kind of a uh, very obscure publisher of libertarian materials, you know. Hmm. So it seemed like Wilson, Bob, really um, carried the torch for Discordianism for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. If if I remember right, you mentioned Greg kind of faded out, and if I remember right, he had some struggles maybe with alcohol and depression. Is that yeah. Right? Yep. And, okay. And then Thornley, uh, you know, we didn't go too far into it, but. Uh, really struggled with psychosis and and paranoia and yes. Can you say a little about that? Uh, did do you know? Would you say he had a clear psychotic break, or he just kind of slowly slipped into paranoia? Or so, Robert Newport, you know, he was he's a clinical psychologist, and uh, I guess that's the correct term and actually uh, that would indicate he has a PhD in psychology that based on. Yeah, Newport's an interesting uh, dude. We'll get to Thornley in a second, but and this goes, you know, goes back to Greg Hill. I learned this recently too that uh, these guys were interested in uh, psychedelics early on, experimenting with different psychedelics. And as I learned, Greg Hill went to out to Millbrook when Leary was there. I don't know much about what happened, but he came back with acid. He was the acid man. He was turning on a lot of people. And one of those was uh, Bob Newport. Bob Newport at that point was in the army where he was uh, basically, uh, he was being a psychologist in the army. This was during the uh, Vietnam period. And he about got court-martialed because he was uh, treating people with LSD in the army that he probably... <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, probably got from, <laughs> probably got from Greg Hill. When I was uh, going through the uh, Discordian archives, I found some dog tags for Bob Newport that had a reason on there, E-R-I-S-A-N. And on your dog tags, you put your religion. So he basically, these dog tags had uh, Discordianism as his religion. And I thought the dog tags were a joke. And I asked him later on, no, those are my actual dog tags from oh, how perfect. the army. So he, he about got tossed out of <laughs> the army for these activities. But, you know, he was this serious practitioner so to speak but he's looking into you know alternative therapies and whatnot and so that's you know where i get the diagnosis that uh, carrie was a paranoid schizophrenic initially was from uh, bob newport then i found other things that uh, confirmed that uh, letter uh, thornley wrote about how he had been diagnosed as well and put on uh, 
you know, anti-psychotic uh, medication. I was just wondering roughly what time he would have been on medication. Yeah, he, re- he really went off the deep end in the late 70s. So I think okay. uh, by the 80s, yeah. it's not, it's, yeah, not really uh, clear. Um, and uh, Newport's interesting. So uh, back, uh, say we're okay, around 74 now. They all kind of gravitated to California. Bob uh, had gone to Mexico, then ended up in Berkeley. But before that, yeah, between Mexico and Berkeley, he was in a town called Rio Nido, which is near the Russian River. And that was the same time that Hill and uh, Newport moved to the Russian River. Newport had some... uh, money from whatever leaving the army and uh, so they landed in the town of monte rio right on the russian river there and newport bought the movie theater in town which was an old in an old quonset hut and they also uh they're doing some progressive stuff they uh, so basically that movie theater greg hill was kind of running it and every week they'd go to san francisco and pick up films and they had a lot of involvement with the uh, public as far as the programming and kind of employed most of the (laughs) hippie population there never made any money you know that type of thing then they also started a health food store and they were involved in like feeding the homeless hippie kids and they had concerts out on the beach there so there was a scene going on and Newport also had uh, some property where and he said he had a mentor who was a libertarian there. I'm not sure who that was. So part of this was this hip, mix of hippie, libertarian, anarchism thing going on. And he was doing his private practice there. And it was done in hot tubs where he had uh, also done oh, nice. a therapy up in a uh, treehouse they built in the Redwoods. And he was actually treating... Uh, Bob Wilson's son there at this uh, place. And so they were all basically in the same area for a period of time. Rio Nido was like, I don't know, it's 10 miles from Camp Rio or uh, Monte Rio, where they had the movie theater. And also another guy named Camden Benares, who was part of this Discordian scene, was living in Camp Meeker just a few miles away, all in the same area. And I know Thornley was visiting, living with Camden Benares at that time. So, you know, they really had a scene going there for a short period, but it all kind of fell apart with part of it was due to uh, Greg Hill had married this uh, lady and her her ex-husband was like uh, harassing Greg Hill and his wife, and uh, the and they were always broke. You know, they didn't, uh, they weren't making any money. It was you know on any of these projects, and it all eventually fell apart. And Greg Hill went into his deep depression. I think after that is when he moved to New York just to get away from everything. So it all kind of uh, fell apart during that uh, period. Mm. Sounded like a good time while it lasted. Yeah. And great Greg Hill ended up working for Bank of America in New York and then moved oh, wow. back to uh, San Francisco. And he was involved in the early days of computer programming. He wrote the first software that Bank of America 
used for word programming for whatever reasons. And so he was kind of a really hacker, so to speak, or a programmer. Another one of those interesting connections between hippies, psychedelics, and computers. Yeah. He, he wrote the first version of one of those uh, computer solitaire games. Oh, wow. It never became a big deal, and it's not the version we know, but uh, yeah. yeah, so that's kind of Greg's story. Yeah, I don't know if you want to circle back to Thornley and his little journey into Chapel Perilous, but it was later in life, I guess, when the all of this thing started coming down with the garrison investigation and everything else, right? Yeah, it was kind of around the time of the of Illuminatus, too, and he began to suspect uh, that that was part of the conspiracy and all of his friends at one time or another were plotting against him and all kind of this spiraled out of control. Uh, Wilson wrote the intro to the prankster and the uh, conspiracy where he, you know, became really worried about Thornley. Thornley became uh, homeless and uh, was, you know, really uh, became a, uh, you know, a mess there for a period of time. But during this, uh, you know, 76, 77 was when he really hit the, the lowest point. But on the flip side of that, other people have told me that Thornley was one of the, the only schizophrenic they knew who could sometimes switch that off and laugh about himself, you know. And so he was kind of in and out of that. You never knew sometimes he'd bring up these really wild conspiracy theories, at whether he was serious or not. Or not right. Uh, this is totally speculation, wild speculation on my part, but a lot of folks really hit that psychotic break, schizophrenic thing in like the early, you know, 18 to 22 year old range. And it almost, I just wonder if maybe he was so free spirited that he was able to, you know, he didn't have a lot of repression that led to a lot of symptoms perhaps uh, because he was so free-spirited but then once the the wall started closing in at this investigation which i mean the amount of pressure that must have put on him he was deep in that garrison investigation yeah and and like we covered there was just a lot of strange loops to create paranoia and uh and newports he uh also pointed to uh thornley's childhood so he kind of grew up in a uh since repressive household because his family were Mormon, but they were Jack Mormon. So there was some hypocrisy there. And supposedly his dad was a pretty hard ass about certain things, you know? And so Thornley was rebelling against that as well, you know, and there was some pressure there, according to Newport, that he thought that led to his later breakdown, you know, coupled with all the other things going on, the garrison investigation and experimenting with psychedelics. So, yeah, it was a number of things. You know, it also, there's evidence that it runs in the family, too. So, you know, just perfect storm factors. Yeah. Number of fact. Do you have a sense of what his relationship to his mother was like? Not not a whole lot. Yeah, I've interviewed one of his brothers about, you know, I didn't have a lot of information on the mom, really. Mm-hmm. He I <laughs> It's just kind of like a sidebar, but he uh, what was his name? I think it's Tom Thornley I talked to and uh I think around this time uh 
Well, Thornley died by then. This was in the 2000s, but his mom was still around, but he was, they were having to put her in an assisted living facility. She was starting to lose it. And uh, he uh, remarked that she had tried to drive through, uh, a drive through backwards, <laughs> you know, for whatever, fast food restaurant. And that was kind of one of the things that, <laughs> that's the only uh, anecdote I have about the uh, mom. Right, right. No, there's, uh, well, certainly a number of factors go into all this. And it's interesting, just a curious path he was on. And, and I don't know how much of this, I know he was involved in these things to a certain extent, but it seemed like he was just always creating something or being involved with something like Carista or Xenarchy or the Freedom School. Oh, yeah. School. Mm-hmm. And I don't know much about those off the top of my head, but were those his create? No, Carista wasn't his creation, was it? He No, a lot of people have, he gets linked to this stuff too in kind of uh, misguided ways, I think. Uh, it's interesting how the, the political ideology of these guys evolved. A lot of them, like uh, Hill and Thornley, even Louise Lacey, mm-hmm. they became anarchists, uh, so to speak, on the uh, within the counterculture, uh, anti-war, pro uh, experimenting with your mind in whatever ways by the late 60s. But a lot of them came out of um, uh, they were Barry Goldwater kids. You know, they were supporters of Barry Goldwater, which I found interesting. All of them were, and I found a, quite a few people in the counterculture started <laughs> as Barry Goldwater uh, supporters. And even Thornley, I came across an op-ed he wrote about uh, Thornley. So the, kind of uh, what Goldwater was, he was kind of aligning with libertarian thought during uh, that period. And a lot of young kids were gravitating to him, even somebody like, you know, Hillary Clinton was one of these Goldwater girls or whatever they called them. So that's kind of, he, he started there, you know, with as a Goldwater supporter and Ayn Rand uh, objectivism and became interested in communism, Marxism for a while. Uh, anarchism was writing that uh, or editing the, uh, that libertarian newsletter but at the same time, uh, Oh, and the the Freedom School gets connected to the Koch brothers nowadays. They came <laughs> they came out of that, and uh, Thornley passed through there. The Freedom School, the guy who was running that, I think he just spent a couple of days. But now there's a few people that try to link Thornley now to the Koch brothers and the early days no, of libertarian. I don't think it's a you don't think there's. At, no, but it plays into different conspiracy theories. But then there's the Carista deal, which was a free love kind of commune that experimented with LSD and marijuana and Thornley became and mate swapping, you know, that was right. They were in L.A. Uh, they came out of New York and they were in L.A. around 65. So. Thornley linked up with them and was kind of became the spokesman or the PR guy who published the Carista newsletter. So he was coming up with a lot of like these mission statements and that type of stuff for this uh, group. He seemed like a real lightning rod wherever he went. Yeah. So he was interested in all this stuff and really uh, 
you know, got involved, loved to, uh, he was very uh, extroverted, whereas Hill was introverted for the most uh, part. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, that led to, you know, he got involved in the uh, counterculture, then the garrison uh, thing, and by the you know, 70s, he went off the rails and he was pretty much homeless for a, a, a period of uh, time, living in a storm uh, drain, even, you know, it got, oh, got wow. that bad, uh, you know, just going into fast food joints and eating whatever food he could find in garbage or whatever, you know, that's, that's how bad it uh, got. And at the same time, entertaining all these wild uh, theories his life getting consumed by them, you know, but it moderated into the eighties and he became known in the early days of the zine movement. He published all kinds of stuff. And that's when I first came across some of his writings in like 87 with the dreadlock recollections, that uh, manuscript I was talking about before his theories and recollections about his involvement or knowledge about the Kennedy assassination and Oswald. And at, at the time when I read that, I was pretty well versed in Kennedy assassination stuff, and none of it in dreadlock recollections made any sense to me at all. You know, <laughs> but there was something compelling about his uh, writing, you know, and he, so he continued, he made a little money there, you know, in selling his zines. And he also, he landed in little five points Atlanta, which is kind of the uh, bohemian uh, little enclave there. And he uh, often sold flowers on the street as a way he made his <laughs> living, ended up working in the bookstore there for a while, acapella books, where he, uh, had a uh, basically a kind of a back room him and his uh he had like 13 cats crazy cat guy yeah he jumped around to different uh things but yeah he never made any money really living from hand to mouth i uh, liked spent a lot of years dishwashing you liked <laughs> washing dishes you like jo jobs like that you know where uh, he could also had plenty of time to uh write he turned dishwashing a bit into a bit of a Zen practice, if I mm -hmm. remember right. Yeah, that's how he described it, yeah. Interesting. So, kind of tangentially speaking here, was there ever a connection with MK Ultra in all of this? Maybe. That... Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. Um, well, Th Thornley suspected there was, and he did freedom of information requests to find out stuff about when he was in the military, but never really, you know, he got back the request saying there was no files on him, but there was other things that emerged FBI files in later years. But one of the odd possible connection has to do with Atsugi base where both he and Oswald were stationed. And according to uh, like an article that appeared in Rolling Stone back in the seventies and some other sources, Atsugi was one of the biggest storehouses for LSD when those MK Ultra experiments were going on, which uh, kind of overlaps with the same time period that uh, Oswald and Thornley were there at Atsugi. So, you know, there's the possibility that they might have been 
on the business end of MK Ultra during that period, there's some there's like an anecdote about Oswald having some type of a freak out when he was at the Atsugi as well. So, you know, you would think that it would be easy enough to know if you'd been dosed or not. But if you're in a paranoid state of being, I can see where things get pretty weird pretty quick. And if you were, you know, theoretically mixing MK Ultra with hypnotism and, you know, erasing those memories, who knows? <laughs> so, yeah, Thornley thought he was the, suspected he the victim of mind control, but it, be, you know, became more elaborate, as I said before, that he believed his parents uh, at one time or another were became spies for the Nazis and that he and Oswald were programmed since youth to be yeah. assassins or something it's just yeah that's the psychosis talking there mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah. yeah wow thornley like here's a good example of some of the oddness in his life and i wrote about write about this in the uh, prankster and the conspiracy people were always uh different friends of his when he was in the little five points were always commenting that thornley'd be around somewhere doing something and men in black would show up that were obviously appeared to be some type of somebody monitoring uh, thornley intelligence agents maybe why would people care about you know the uh by the 90s uh any involvement Thornley might have had with the uh, Kennedy assassination, but I had a few people share stories with me, you know, that uh, they'd be with Thornley at a party or something in a restaurant, and somebody would buy them uh, drinks, and then Thornley left, and they'd come over, and they were, uh, they got the vibe off of them that, you know, they, they were kind of spooky, and they started answering the uh, asking questions about uh, Thornley and the Kennedy assassination. So he had that kind of oddity always around Thornley. So maybe, you know, it's hard to know. Maybe there really was uh, something going on and people were monitoring him within IC circles all those years later. I'll mention one thing about uh, Wilson, too. I got that kind of vibe off him as uh, well. There was some oddities when I was interviewing him, and I've written about this before, but uh, one had to do with, well, like uh, Wilson and Luis Lacey and uh, another guy was Bud Simcoe. They were all friends of Thornley's and, you know, they were involved in the counterculture in the 60s. And these people in particular, when I'd get on the phone with them, I'd always hear this telltale click. Now I'm starting to sound paranoid perhaps but it was always unique to, i didn't hear it in other phone calls with other people and i'd get that suspicion somehow that their phones were being tapped you know call it paranoia on my part but uh you know and you ask yourself well, why would people care but the all of these guys are involved pretty deeply in uh, the anti-war protests you know back in the 60s and 70s and whatnot so who knows maybe all these years later people were keeping track of their activities when i interviewed wilson with my friend uh, greg bishop greg taped the interview and so he was going to send it to me once he got back home you know in a few weeks past and i asked me hey, what's the deal with the uh 
tape from the interview. Oh, okay, I'll get it from you. Yeah, in a couple of days, you know. So time passed. Several months passed, actually, you know, and I asked him and he said, yeah, man, I sent it. I don't know what the heck's going on. I swear to God, a year must have passed and the uh, cassette finally showed up in the mail. And it was obviously the package <laughs> had been opened and resealed. I don't know what the hell that means, but that was some of the odd you know, things that occurred with Wilson. He had uh, something else I've written about. He was uh, he had that. Uh, mailing like an email list going group mind yeah and his handle was mark chan which i later discovered was like short for that uh, character who is it mark uh, mark off cheney yeah and so he was sending out these emails and he'd uh, cc them to john poindexter who at that time was overseeing the Office of Information Awareness, if you recall, that was launched after 9-11. And they had that weird emblem they used for that agency, which was the all-seeing eye with a beam coming down. It was like total 1984 stuff ripped from the cover of Illuminatus. <laughs> weird stuff. And I asked him, Bob, why, why are you CCing John Poindexter? And he says, well, that you know, they're going to track me anyway, and uh, I might as well cut out the middleman, save the taxpayers a couple money of positions, people they won't need monitoring my conversations, and send them directly to John Poindexter. And I asked him about the emblem of the uh, Office of Information Awareness, which was IAO and also kind of connects to Alistair Crowley, which is another deal. But I asked him about that, and he said, yeah, he was just, I don't know what the hell's going on either. It's like the uh, government's being run by a bunch of surrealists now. It seemed like a, an in-joke almost to the extent of using, you know, a logo like that <laughs> for an intel agency that, like it came from the cover of Illuminatus. Well, you can't make it up. Yeah. <laughs> well, we like to close normally by uh, asking if you have any projects you're working on right now or websites you'd like to give people the link to yeah i have a number of websites of course the main one uh, i'd like to direct people especially in relation to this show is historiadiscordia.com which was is the same name of the book i uh, published a few years back about the origins of the discordian society and i have a wealth of material so that's why we launched the website just to uh publish other things that there wasn't room enough for in the book. So there's that. There's, uh, I have adamgorightly.com and a couple blogs, Untamed Dimensions, and another one called Chasing UFOs that I basically launched uh, because I published a uh, couple of UFO-related books over the last few years. So that's kind of using it in the same manner of Historia Discordia to... Uh, published different odds and ends that didn't end up in the uh, books. My latest book is a uh, UFO-related book called Saucers, Spooks, and Kooks, UFO Disinformation in the Age of Aquarius, which has been uh, pretty well received. And there's talks now of potentially it becoming a film uh, documentary. Awesome. I think there's a good prospect of that uh, happening. I'm also 
an actor upon occasion and appeared in a film a couple of years ago called The Hill and the Hole, where I uh, play kind of a uh, psychotic uh, Freemason uh, serial killer with a wry sense of humor. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's something to check out. That's still on Amazon uh, Prime, I think. Uh, what else? There's uh, yeah, there's other book projects in the uh, pipeline, but I normally don't want to discuss those too much uh, before the fact and end up jinxing them. So yeah, that's 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 basically it. And that's great. We'll put those links in the show notes. And you referenced a few specific pieces on Historia Discordia we can throw in there as well. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Oh, thank yeah. you guys for having me on. All right. Adam, go rightly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Yes, sir. Thanks, guys. That concludes our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. A big thank you to Adam Go Rightly for taking the time to talk with us. You can find Adam at adamgorightly.com as well as historiadiscordia.com. Thank you to Christina Pearson for fighting the good fight and keeping the work of her father, Robert Anton Wilson, alive and thriving. Thank you to executive producer Richard Rossett for keeping us to a high standard. And thank you to our engineer, Ryan Reeves, for putting it all together. Our next episode will release on the 23rd of February. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor e hilaritas. Discordians must stick apart. Uh,